0: This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. While the majority of people who have COVID-19 completely recover within a few weeks, there are some patients who continue to experience symptoms which can last for months. While COVID most commonly affects the lungs, other organs can be involved and patients can develop long-term impairment of a variety of organ systems. They may require our care for an extended period of time. Although much has been learned about COVID-19 over the past couple years, there's still much that's not known. Our topic for today's podcast is post-COVID syndrome, and our guest is Dr. Greg Vanishachorn from the Division of Preventive Medicine. He's also a public health expert, and we'll discuss the typical symptoms, duration of symptoms, and who's most likely to develop post-COVID syndrome. Greg, welcome. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, let's talk about the definition of post-COVID syndrome. Is it a distinct entity, or is it just a variety of one or more lingering symptoms following an
1: infection? Right now, we kind of consider this a distinct entity that does involve a wide variety of symptoms. But... Uh, There has been progress made in actually describing and defining this definition. Just in October of 2021, the World Health Organization came up with their own definition, finally, for what long-haul COVID or what we call post-COVID syndrome really is. And per their definition, in order for a person to have long-haul COVID, they have to have symptoms that are lingering more than three months out after the infection starts. The symptoms must be going on for more than two months. Of course, there has to be a documented case of a positive test for COVID or at least a good history for a COVID infection. And the symptoms, they can't be explained better by anything else. A little bit vague, but it is a step forward. That being said, you know, this is such a new condition that uh, that's not the only definition out there. In fact, we don't even have a agreed upon name for this thing yet. The CDC tends to define long-haul COVID or post-COVID syndrome as anything that is occurring more than four weeks out after infection. Post-COVID
0: syndrome is relatively uncommon. Is there any thought as to why
1: some patients develop these long-term symptoms and others don't? Now We've been looking back at risk factors for this condition to try to figure out, is there anything that hints at who may get this? And unfortunately, the more we dig into this, the more it really looks like anybody can really get this. Most people think that it's the individuals who have been in the hospital or in the ICU or have really severe acute infections that get long-haul COVID, but that's not what we have seen in the research. And in fact, here at our own clinic at Mayo, over 75% of our patients had a very mild acute illness with COVID, you know, they didn't even have to go to their local primary care doctor for care While we do see patients with long-haul COVID after they've been in the hospital, and those patients do tend to have a more severe course, it's not the majority of the patients that we see. Most recently, there has been some research um, that has found that individuals of female gender are more at risk for this condition. And if that sounds uh, rather strange, this is a pattern we also see with autoimmune conditions and other similar conditions like chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia. There's also been some research indicating that possibly individuals with pre-existing breathing conditions like asthma or C or PD may be at more at risk. But right now, other than that, we don't have a lot of good risk factors to understand this. Is it related to the
0: severity of their initial infection?
1: No, I can't say that at all. Some of our patients have had very mild or even almost asymptomatic conditions. It has a little bit of a headache or a sore throat. Not related at all to how severe it could be. It could be pretty mild and then have severe long-haul symptoms. Mm-hmm. Well, we probably don't know
0: all who have had COVID since uh, some may not have been tested, but are there thoughts as to what percentage of those who have had a COVID infection uh, Mm -hmm. go on to develop
1: post-COVID syndrome? Yeah, that's a great question. And based on what I've seen in the literature, my current estimate is about 10 to 20% of patients who have COVID will end up coming down with with long-haul COVID. Now, if that seems like a high number, that actually is quite a conservative estimate based on most recent research. There was a, a recent article published in JAMA about this issue where they looked at all the different studies in a meta-analysis to try to come up with a, an overall estimate, and what they found after looking at the literature was 50% or a little over 50% of patients after a COVID infection will go on to have symptoms at six months. Now, that being said, many of the studies that have looked at these patient populations have looked at very specific populations, patients who have been in the ICU or in the hospital, but not in the ICU and so forth. And the numbers in these studies are are quite variable, to say the least. So I think as time goes on, we'll get a better idea of of honing in on how frequently this will happen. I think the most important takeaway for everyone to realize though, is that this is not rare by any stretch of the imagination. This is something that we should all be prepping to see in our clinics. Is the vaccine at all
0: protective? Is it known if those who have received the immunization are less likely to develop
1: post-COVID syndrome? We have started to look at some of our patient data and it does seem to look like, at least at a cursory review, that patients who have been vaccinated, if they get long-haul COVID, they tend to have a faster recovery. But right now I haven't seen a difference between those individuals who have long-haul COVID between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated.
0: I I worked in a COVID clinic last winter, and it seemed like the majority of patients who had long-term symptoms in my clinic were either pulmonary or uh, persistent loss of sense of smell and taste.
1: Are are those the more common post-COVID symptoms? The most common symptoms that we hear about are the fatigue, which is quite profound, and the shortness of breath. Um, I can't overstate enough how profound the fatigue is. Patients will often say something like, they go to take out the trash or take the dog out for a walk, and then they have to take a a three to four hour nap afterwards, or they might go for a light jog and then be down and out for a couple of uh, days. This is something referred to as post-exertional malaise, so that we have seen also in the cryonic fatigue and fibromyalgia groups as well. In addition to that, we see the shortness of breath quite frequently, and that can be at rest or with activity. And while those are the two most common symptoms that we hear about, right up there also are things like neurological issues, such as headaches or tingling and numbness in the extremities. And we also hear a lot about the, the quote unquote brain fog. And that is most often described by patients as difficulties with short term memory, troubles with multitasking, and word finding, which can be extraordinarily frustrating. And on top of all of that, we see a whole slew of other symptoms like troubles of sleep. Of course, there's some anxiety and depression, rigging in the ears, tremors, and so forth. Mm-hmm. It seems like we find out more and more about what could possibly be related to long-haul COVID on a daily basis.
0: I had a few patients who really developed significant pulmonary dysfunction. And as far as we know, had no pre-existing pulmonary disease, yet Um, I mean, I followed them for probably three, four months, and some are still on oxygen therapy that long out. So
1: it could be pretty dramatic. Yeah. Yeah. That's something that we have seen previously with the other coronavirus outbreaks, like SARS or MERS, individuals having prolonged difficulties with their breathing uh, without all the other long-haul COVID symptoms. So that can occur on its own, we have seen. It's unfortunate, though, it can last quite a few months, as you mentioned, and the primary concern, as I understand, is pulmonary fibrosis and maybe some related issues there.
0: Is it typical that these symptoms go away at some point? Uh, Do they get resolution after a few months, or do some
1: seem to be permanent? Yeah, unfortunately, now that we are uh, almost two years out from starting to work with this condition, we've got a, a better idea of how these things play out. And we are seeing still some individuals, not the majority, but some individuals who are still suffering from symptoms a year and a half to two years out. They're all doing better than when they first started and they have a lot more ways to adapt to their symptoms uh, to keep them as much in control of their condition as the other way around. But yeah, it, it does really seem like that long haul name is appropriate. Now that being said, we do see another group of patients that seems to get better somewhere in that four to six month window. And what we've noticed from looking back at our data is that these patients that get better sooner, they get care earlier in their process. So instead of waiting four months out to see somebody, they start getting care about four weeks out. They also had less brain fog symptoms at the very beginning. So the takeaway there is, you know, if someone is having symptoms, they shouldn't be afraid to, to seek out care as early as possible. Mm hmm. Well, you've mentioned uh, pulmonary
0: CNS symptoms. Um, Are there other organs that are commonly involved
1: with post-COVID syndrome? You know, one thing that many people overlook is the skin and the hair, dermatological issues. Back during acute COVID, we all heard about things like the blue toes and things like that. And what we have seen in the long-haul COVID process is people are losing their hair, which is quite traumatic for many individuals. This is something that occurs typically several months out after the infection and fits with the profile for telogen effluvium. So it's not really hair loss, but hair shedding due to the sort of extreme shock that the body goes through during the acute COVID process. There is no treatments that are recommended to to stop this or or make make this go away faster. But patients do need to be reassured about this because it's, again, quite traumatic that someone could be losing their hair. On top of all of that, we also um, see a lot of like rashes and also some delayed wound healing. And that may reflect some of the hyperimmune or autoimmune processes that may be at play with long-haul COVID. So the hair loss is something I haven't
0: seen. Can that occur in somebody who presumably has recovered and is doing
1: well, and then the hair loss still occurs a couple months later? Yeah, I'm not so sure about that because most of the patients that I've seen, they're all having ongoing symptoms. I have not heard of this occurring on its own just randomly after a COVID infection. What about pathologically? Um, What's going on in the lungs? Good question. I I wish I knew. Right now, most of the tests that we do, they all come back normal. The the only outlier so far has been decreased fusion capacity of carbon monoxide. We see that fairly frequently on the pulmonary function testing. Um, We've had a few cases of pulmonary fibrosis, but it's rare. But overall, everything looks good when we do the diagnostic testing. So right now, we don't really have a good chemical understanding or pathological understanding of what's going on in the lung tissue to cause these difficulties. And how about the heart? What common cardiac symptoms uh, mm-hmm. do these patients get? Uh, by far the most common symptom that we hear from patients is either a rapid heart rate or having some chest tightness. And of course, we go through the normal cardiac workup and pulmonary workups when someone has these kinds of symptoms, always returning back normal. Uh, The one outlier that we sometimes see with uh, the heart is myocarditis, and our test of choice here has been a cardiac MRI. We found that to be more uh, helpful than doing an echocardiogram by itself, and we have detected a few patients uh, with myocarditis as part of their long-haul COVID uh, experience. We also do do the echocardiogram, though, if we need a little bit more information, and sometimes we'll see some ventricular dysfunction or pulmonary hypertension uh, as well, but we haven't seen many significant abnormalities there. The the chest tightness that many patients experience, though, despite these normal symptoms, we actually think that may be related to a bit of small fiber neuropathy, and neuropathy in general seems to be part of the long-haul COVID picture, at least that what we have seen here in, in our patient population, and this is something that's also been repeated in the literature. It does seem that COVID is not just a pulmonary condition, but can be a significant neurological condition as well. Mm -hmm.
0: So do these patients develop
1: any congestive failure symptoms? Is that a common occurrence? No, I haven't seen that much at all. Uh, We have seen some edema in the lower extremities, but typically related to more of the autonomic neuropathy, POTS syndrome type of phenomenon. Okay.
0: And then the brain, we've discussed several of the conditions, loss of smell and taste, uh, brain fog.
1: Uh, Is there any known pathology that's going on up there that could explain that? Some of the studies so far have indicated that there can be the presence of inflammatory changes in the brain, increased immune cells, such as in the CSF or um, in the brain tissue itself. Um, There also has been some very recent research looking at possible pathways that are similar to what happens in Alzheimer's. Now, this was a very small study of only 10 patients, but it does cause some concern and definitely raises an issue and a subject that we need to take a closer look at. So I, I do think that there is probably an autoimmune or, or at least a hyperinflammatory issue occurring in the brain that the symptoms that people are experiencing, the neuropsychiatric symptoms are not just related to the stress of the, the condition, the, you know, the fatigue and the poor sleep, but there could be an actual brain process going on. Let's talk a little bit about management to these patients. And I realize that uh,
0: the treatment varies depending on the organ system involved, but are
1: there any generalities uh, regarding treatment that you can uh, talk about? Absolutely. So at the very core of long-haul COVID, I think the main issue is deconditioning. So deconditioning can occur after any illness that we have, whether it be the flu or having a a minor procedure in the hospital. But it particularly seems to be true for for COVID infections, coronavirus infections. And so patients come out um, after the infection pretty pretty down and out and weak and fatigued. But they also, because of the long haul COVID pathology, whatever it may be, the autoimmune issues, um, the hyperimmune state, their body is essentially in a state of fighting off an infection that's no longer there. So they begin to experience a whole slew of additional symptoms, like the muscle aches, the fatigue, perhaps the neuropathy symptoms. And all those symptoms get in the way of a person's ability to recover appropriately. What we often see is patients get really frustrated that they're not getting better faster. So what they try to do is they try to grit their teeth and just jump back to their normal lives as quickly as they can. So going back to work full duty, hitting the gym like they normally would, and so forth. But as we discussed earlier, patients with this condition, they can have significant flares of their symptoms with activity, sometimes lasting for days. So people will get stuck into this vicious cycle of activity, followed by a flare of their symptoms, followed by rest and further deconditioning, and then back and forth and back and forth and back and forth until they come to get medical care in a very demoralized and and deconditioned state. So, at the central core of our treatment has been helping patients rehabilitate and recondition in an appropriate fashion. And that doesn't mean we want them to go exercise, but we have our patients meet with our physical and occupational therapy teams to help guide them uh, in the appropriate amount of activity on a daily basis. And we tend to look at the, the rehab processes, not just the typical rehab activities that most people think about, like doing band work or stretching or core exercises, but also all those things that someone normally does during their day as part of their normal function. So how many loads of laundry were you able to do? How many flights of stairs were you able to go up in your home? Uh, Were you able to do the dishes for 10 minutes versus 15 minutes? All of that takes a very hands-on approach for patients because they're often shocked about how low and slow they have to go in order to get better. In addition to that PT slash OT uh, paradigm, we also treat all the symptoms that are occurring that get in the way of someone um, being able to participate in this therapy effectively. So if someone has headaches, we treat that, uh, sleep issues, neuropathy issues as well. You made an excellent point though. All of the treatment for those conditions, it's the same as it would be with treatment if the person didn't have long-haul COVID. So for example, with sleep issues, we always offer sleep hygiene. Maybe we try some over-the-counter supplementation of melatonin we're worried about apnea, we'll do a home sleep test and things like that. So all that's the same. The only crucial point is the part about the rehab process and how low and slow people need to go. And I imagine with these
0: symptoms, there's a significant loss of productivity and uh, a significant economic impact as well.
1: Absolutely. That's uh, been the latest worry uh, for me and many others. Um, I'm an occupational medicine doctor, and so function and the ability to uh, participating in your livelihood has always been a concern of mine and the program here. And what we found is that patients, because of all these symptoms, by the time they came to our clinic, they were really having a hard time with their function. 30% of our patients reported difficulties doing basic ADLs. So again, that's like just putting on your clothes or taking a shower. 80% reported troubles with their eye ADLs, grocery shopping, household chores, and of course, work. A little over 60% of our patients had been able to get back to work in some form by the time that they reached our clinic. And that may sound optimistic, but it's important to note that the average time to presentation for our clinic was three months out after the infection. So uh, three months out after being ill, only a little over half of folks were able to get back to their work. And when you take the, the sheer number of people in this country that have had COVID infections, even at 10%, we're talking potentially about millions of people that could be out of work for prolonged periods of time, uh, during a time period when our economy is hurting, the workforce is hurting. And so this is a a big issue in many realms.
0: Yeah, and I think this shows how much we still have yet to learn about this particular virus. Well, Greg, can you give us maybe two or three key points of interest
1: that uh, summarize our discussion on post-COVID syndrome? Mm -hmm. So I think the first thing is, you know, this is such a new condition. And we haven't really been at this kind of crossroad in medicine for, for a long time with something so new that's affecting so many people. And so until we have a really better understanding of how this condition is working on a, on a cellular level, I think we should all be really open-minded about what can or cannot be long-haul COVID at this point. Don't be quick to pigeonhole patients into certain diagnoses What patients are really looking for uh, at this part, in this stage of this condition, is really just someone to talk to and explain what they are experiencing. And the more we can listen to them, the better we can get at understanding this condition. And likewise, for the patient's perspective of things, if patients are out there suffering and and they're worried about their symptoms, please don't hesitate to get care. Even if it's as early as three to four weeks early on, sometimes getting the, the right kind of rehab mindset going on can really speed up your recovery and prevent you from getting those kind of long-haul symptoms. we've been discussing
0: post-COVID syndrome with Dr. Greg Vanishkachorn from the Division of Preventive Occupational and Aerospace Medicine. Greg, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.